Thank you, Martin, and good morning, church. I came specially dressed today in the two outfits of my trade, the dog collar and the pinstripe suit, so you could tell what I was supposed to be doing. But as a Methodist minister and a, a qualified chartered accountant, I've learned two very hard lessons in life. Firstly, that non-church people become very worried when a minister stands up to talk to them. And secondly, that church people become very worried when an accountant stands up to talk to them. I learned quite some time ago that I just can't win, which coincidentally actually is a very useful lesson when I'm at home with my wife and two boys. But I hope that today none of you need to worry too much. People do ask me if I'm a part-time Methodist minister. So I ask them if they're a part-time Christian. Or maybe a part-time parent. Just because we don't spend all of our time with our children doesn't mean we're not always their mum or their dad. A minister is not what you do, but who you are. Just as Christians are who we are. Not just what we believe or what we do when we're in church on a Sunday. If we're following Jesus, we follow him every day, all day. We sound like stalkers, don't we? And that's the same whether we're ministers, healthcare workers, office cleaners, factory workers, or cab drivers. As we've heard several times already today, today is Mission in Britain Sunday. And what can that be about other than sharing God's good news, not just with those around us, but those in our wider communities, neighborhoods, workplaces, schools, cafes, and other places that we get together with other people. Here at Methodist Central Hall, Westminster, some people think that we're a church on Sundays and a conference center during the week. They think we do God's work on a Sunday and secular work during the rest of the week. But let me tell you something. There's no such thing as secular work, at least not for us. God is in this place every day, every day of every week, every week of every year at work, sometimes in obvious ways, sometimes less obviously, but still here. Every person who walks in through the front doors of this building each day has an opportunity to meet with God, and God has an opportunity to meet with them. But we meet God in different ways, don't we? In prayer, in contemplation, in study. Importantly, we also meet him in other people, in their actions and their attitudes towards us. That's one of the ways in which we hope people meet with God as they come here each week. We meet with him, often unawares as we go about our daily tasks, as we'll hopefully explore today. We can meet with him in our work, in our socializing, in our travel on the tube, or even shopping in Tesco's. We think sometimes that when we're called to do something for God, we're called away from where we were, and even from who we were to something else. And that may be the case sometimes, but for many of us it's not. 
We are called, each and all of us. Most of us are called to live out our Christian lives more fully, where we already are, and all the time. Looking to our readings today a little closer. Our readings this morning are about good use of money and the other things that we have, but also about fidelity and honesty in relationships, how we demonstrate who we are. I sometimes think it's odd because the Bible talks a lot more about money and our use of money than we think it does, or maybe more than we'd like it to, and a lot less about other things that as Christians we spend a lot of time discussing. We heard in our reading to the letter to the Hebrews that we should not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, we might inadvertently entertain angels. The words entertaining and strangers have the sense of treating a person we don't yet know nobly and magnanimously in the contexts of our own homes, joyfully seeking to bring that person refreshment. In the ancient world, it was expensive to stay overnight in an inn. And such establishments usually had poor reputations. There was no premier inn, I'm afraid, or even a travel lodge at the time, and thus an aspect of Jewish and Greek and Roman duty and etiquette involved taking people in for the evening. The earliest Christians, of course, shared this broader context and culture and therefore many opportunities existed, existed for them to practice hospitality towards traveling teachers, business people, and refugees from persecution. Reflecting a model from Jewish literature in Genesis where Abraham and Sarah showed hospitality to three strangers who turned out to be heavenly messengers with news so unbelievably good that Sarah could only laugh when told she was expecting a baby at her great age. Understandably, but regrettably, despite this recurring biblical theme, most of us, including myself, are hesitant to live it out. We not only usually fear the stranger, but we teach our children to be beware of strangers. Although this is a sad testimony to the reality of predators, to continue as adults always to be suspicious and wary of strangers is to miss messengers from God. We need to show necessary caution, of course, but also be open. So in this sense of showing hospitality, it's not always as we tend to think about it in cafes, restaurants and hotels, but in homes, in workplaces, in our own places not just professional ones. Many, as I'm sure, many of us, I'm sure, have come from or lived in cultures where putting up people for a few days is common and expected. I've met strangers off aeroplanes and put them up for a few days, and years later, they've become friends, people we keep in contact with. But how do we do that now, here, in this time, in this place? How do we show hospitality in our homes, in our private spaces? but also in the places that we spend every day. Schools, offices, buses, factories, 
whilst at the same time showing reasonable caution. We're also encouraged by the writer of Hebrews to be content with our financial status, to keep our lives free from the love of money and to be content with what we have. Is that sometimes why we don't show hospitality? We're protecting what we have. It's not generally how the world tells us to live our lives these days. The world tells us we need to be ambitious. We can have anything we want, we are told, if only we want it enough and work hard enough for it. But those greedy for money pursue a narrow self-gratification that stops them relying on God's provision. We as Christians are therefore exhorted to keep our lives free from the love of money and to be content with what we have. That basis for contentment is God's promise of his ever-present help. And the significance of the promise is clear. God keeps his covenant to provide for his people. We do not need to worry that our needs will go unmet, but I know that that can be tough in reality sometimes. Theology, though, has a pervading relevance for our daily lives, for individuals, for groups of people, and for companies. The opening verses of our reading demonstrate that Christian commitment involves living out our commitment to Christ in the nitty-gritty of daily living. And how we live out our lives and commit our money cannot be separated from theology. This is where our relationship with God is really worked out. The streets, the kitchen tables, offices and cafes are the places where we must confess his name and do Christ's work if we are to live authentically as believers. The principles must be worked out in daily practice, in the dirty places, as well as the clean and sacred spaces. It seems to me that one of the most insidious dynamics of church today and society at large is how we've allowed the division of life into two separate spheres, the sacred and the secular. The life of the saints and the life of the street are meant to be integrated, not ripped apart. Faith isn't private. It needs to be worldly. And the truth, truth needs to be spoken in the words of the street, in the words of the workplace, the words of the family home. Faith needs to be in the real world, and we need to rediscover how to take it there and to share it. That doesn't mean I don't think that we need to walk around with placards declaring that the end of the world is nigh, but it does mean that we need to show Christ's love in all that we do, all that we say. Because somehow real-world faith has been replaced by a shallow substitute, a spirituality that looks inwards into the soul, but then fails to look back outwards into the real world. It is through devoted living for God in the common aspects of life that the gospel is proclaimed and the kingdom is built. We can't build the kingdom by standing in church. 
And if we're to lay foundations in the street, we can't do it while standing at the communion table. We lay bricks through common practices of financial management, cleaning dirty faces, filthy floors, by integrity at work, care for the burdened and the sad in hospitality to those that we meet. Meet once and meet every day. And money is one area that tests the authenticity of our commitment to God. The heart that is too close to the wallet and the purse is out of place and grows numb to the good gifts and provisions of God. Freedom from the love of money eludes rich and poor alike. The poor struggle against the demands of daily living, the lack of food, difficulty of transport, and lack of social advancement. Dire surroundings that cry out against God's promises. And the rich, by contrast, can no longer hear God's promises amid their possessions and perpetual demands for more. We cannot be both lovers of money and lovers of God because those loves divide our allegiances, passions, and efforts in life. And that's difficult to work out sometimes in the life of a commercial company, such as the one that we have here, where there are salaries to pay, bills to meet. But that's not too dissimilar to our own lives with rent or the mortgage to pay and food to put on the table. There's a tension between getting enough to be content and wanting more and more. It's a fact of life that the more we think we need, the more we earn, the more we think we need on top. What we actually think we need is, most cases, just a little bit more than we already have. And that's the same however much we earn. Minimum wage or banker's bonuses. Because this is how it works. We come to resemble the thing that we admire most. People who admire paper, sorry, money, become paper thin and crinkly. People who admire computers grow user unfriendly. People who admire youth fail to mature. People who actively and de deliberately admire Jesus Christ come to resemble him as he actually was and remains today, unchanged from age to age. Jesus, generous, happy, tender, fierce, courageous, sometimes mischievous, always fully open to others. Infidelity and love of money are barriers to making mutual love the hallmark of the Christian community. The author of Hebrews then reminds the community to remember those leaders who model mutual love and closes the section with the reassurance that the best model for, for mutual love is Jesus Christ himself, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A lawyer once asked Jesus what he should do to inherit eternal life. But eternal life then didn't mean life that just went on and on and on. It's not about what happens after we die because, think about it, eternal life has already begun. 
means life that really matters and so endures. Life of a new age, living by God's way. As the lawyer summed it up, it was to love God with everything that you had and to love others in the same way. And Jesus responded to the story of the Good Samaritan with, go and do likewise. Most people live such a life, most people want to live such a life and to be good persons, but today's passage sums it up too. Be content with what you have. Say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. No Christian manages to live the good life 100%. Wanting to live such a life is, however, on the way to being ready to offer hospitality to strangers in the manner the Good Samaritan did to the injured man. We're reminded of Jesus' encouragement to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, to lunch or to dinner. Indeed, the Bible is full of reminders for us to care for the poor, widows, orphans, and strangers in our midst. It's not the easy or even natural thing to do. And I know that I'm much more comfortable entertaining my relatives and my immediate neighbors. And we see in society today how difficult it sometimes is to offer hospitality to refugees and migrant people in our midst. Being able to offer hospitality to strangers comes from a new kind of reaching out in love. An empathetic love that also enables us to put ourselves in the shoes of others. Our gospel reading invites, no, implores us to do something with the riches, the money and abilities that we've been so generously given. Put our talents and our money to work. That's what it says makes us faithful. The reading doesn't unfortunately tell us how God would react if we invested and lost everything. But the implication is that if we trust, if we're faithful, then the kingdom of God will benefit. Whoever goes out and invests God's assets will return more to God. Noting, however, of course, that this isn't a prosperity gospel. This is not about us gaining more for ourselves, rather about the kingdom of God benefiting. God's purpose moving forward through our commitment to him. We are called to take risks with what we have, take risks with who we are. We're called to invest what we have and who we are, to invest in God's kingdom. Do we hide our talents waiting for God to return? With this building, throughout the week, we invest what we have and who we are in our local community, and more widely, opening our doors to all sorts of people, and using this wonderful resources this wonderful resource that our ancestors invested in to spread God's word. 
Sometimes that investment is obvious. When we have a charity in doing some great work, Daffodil Day. Sometimes less obvious. Some young people celebrating their graduations or celebrating their wonderful work and achievements. Hopefully some also recognizing the space they're in and giving thanks to God for what he's given them. Sometimes the investment is less obvious or not obvious at all. People of all ages celebrating in this hall a new year, a new beginning in a concert. Or bankers hearing about the latest product development from their multinational owners. But each person entering this building throughout the week, not just on Sundays, has the opportunity to look up, to have a moment of peace. This building was built as a meeting place for all peoples, for public debate and for discussion. Not all will react. But God asks us to take risks, to be faithful. Sometimes we get it wrong. But always offering opportunities, chances to meet with God, chances to begin a personal relationship, chances for a seed to be planted or nourished, chances to meet with an angel. So, here at Methodist Central Hall in Westminster, we know that angels visit, however we conceive of such things, and we'll do that in different ways, each of us. We try to entertain all with the same level of care and love, offering rest, offering water, offering challenge. We take risks. Sometimes we succeed. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we're faithful. Sometimes we're forgetful. But my question to all of us on mission in Britain Sunday are these. Are you hoping that someone somewhere else is doing mission for you in the places where you live? How are we investing in the places where we live, investing to share the good news, sharing the good news of Jesus? How are we intentionally entertaining all, lest one be an angel? Amen.